Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the Ebbett Foundation, welcome to this address by distinguished Canadian author John Ralston Saul. My name's Monica Wheeler and I'm the secretary of the Ebbett Foundation. The Ebbett Foundation was established more than 30 years ago as a memorial to Doc Ebbett. Doc Ebbett was a High Court judge, a minister in the Curtin and Chifley governments, and the only Australian to this date to be elected the President of the United Nations General Assembly. Our aim is to advance the highest ideals of the labour movement, such as equality, participation, social justice and human rights. We seek to do this by promoting ideas through research, publications, public discussion and debate. So you can imagine it was to our absolute delight that John Ralston Saul accepted our invitation to return to Australia and share his insights on the world we live in today. John Ralston Saul reminds us that there are alternatives to the individualist and corporatist paradigm. His ideas expose and provoke, but most importantly, he inspires. Ladies and gentlemen, this event would not have been possible without the support of the Sydney Opera House and in particular, Anne Mossop, Head of Public Programs. Would you please welcome Anne Mossop, who will introduce Mr Ralston Saul. Thanks. Hi everyone, thanks Monica. Um, welcome again on behalf of the Opera House. We're delighted to be presenting this event with the Ebbett Foundation with John Ralston Saul. As you know, he's one of Canada's leading public intellectuals, but in an incredibly busy life, he's also president of Penn International, um, an organisation dedicated to promoting literature and freedom of expression. And uh, in recognition of that role, we have, as you will see on the stage, an empty chair uh, in, uh, uh, to help us to think about Liu Xiaobo. Um, and I'm just going to let you know a little bit about, uh, about him before we get underway. Yu Jabo was arrested on the 8th of December 2008 and held under residential surveillance, a form of pre-trial detention, at an undisclosed location in Beijing until he was formally charged on the 23rd of June 2009 with spreading rumours and defaming the government aimed at subversion of the state and overthrowing the socialism system in recent years. He was sentenced to 11 years in prison on the 25th of December 2009 for his critical writings and his role in launching Charter 08, a declaration calling for political reforms and human rights, published on the 9th of December 2008, which now has over 10,000 signatories from throughout China. Since the 22nd of October 2010, two weeks after the announcement that he had won the Nobel Prize, his wife, Liu Jia, a poet and photographer, has been held incommunicado under strict house arrest at her home in Beijing and is denied any contact with the outside world. At the December 2010 Nobel Peace Prize Awards ceremony in Oslo, Liu Xiaobo's medal and diploma were presented to an empty chair. We're here this afternoon to hear from John Ralston Saul. Um, the title of his talk, as you know, um, uh, is going to allow him to range freely over many topics. Um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with his work, particularly his work as a non-fiction writer, as he's someone who's come to Australia many times over the years, and, uh, and hence we've seen references to Australia incorporated in his work. But his earliest works, writings were as a novelist, and include the bestseller Birds of Prey in 1977, which was followed by the Field Trilogy. Um, and his first novel in 15 years, Dark Diversions, has been launched to coincide with his visit here. It's just been published. 
Australian readers uh, and Writers' Festival attendees have come to love John Ralston Saul, particularly through his work as an essayist and the publication of his books of non-fiction, Voltaire's, Voltaire's Bastards, The Dictatorship of Reason in the West, The Doubter's Companion, A Dictionary of Aggressive Common Sense, and The Unconscious Civilization, which was published in 1995. Um, these books were followed in 2001 by On Equilibrium, Six Qualities of the New, the New Humanism, which is, again, talks about some of those same kinds of issues. These are all books that range across a broad spectrum of social, political and philosophical issues in an incisive and illuminating way. His work is notable for its refusal to succumb in this era of hyper-specialisation to the separation of politics and economics from the realities of human lives and from history. His most trenchant social critiques put current problems into the historical and philosophical perspective, showing that we're not the only peoples to have had to confront debt, poverty, injustice and uh, a decaying political system. He's also the author of two very important books about Canada, Reflections of a Siamese Twin, Canada at the End of the 20th Century, and A Fair Country, Telling Truths About Canada. What's very interesting, and I hope we'll get to talk to him about this a bit later on, is what these books have to tell us about Canada, but also about the ways in which Canada and Australia are both similar and different, in that they have the common legacy of Aboriginal peoples um, from that to our commodity-based present. In 2005, he published The Collapse of Globalism and the Reinvention of the World, um, which predicted in some ways the, what, what we apparently only in Australia call the global financial crisis. Um, and it was updated in 2009 following the start of that process of, of economic chaos. So this is a work that looks at how those, the tides of globalisation and nationalism and their interaction uh, led to this fa the fatally flawed financial system which um, sees us, many countries, in such severe difficulties today. Um, as I said, John is currently the president of Penn International and in this, work, in this role works across the globe on issues relating to freedom of speech. His talk today, It's Broke, How Can We Fix It?, um, I'm sure he's going to tell us a lot about his, uh, his many ideas and passions, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you today, John Ralston Saul. Hi. Good afternoon. It's uh, wonderful to be here, and I have to tell you, I, just, I came from Toronto, and it's warmer in Toronto than it is in Sydney. It's very, I have to say that as a Canadian, and we don't often get a chance to say anything like that, so I'm just going to not rub it in, but say it. And um, it's fantastic to be back in Sydney. I love being in Australia. I love being in Sydney. It's such a fantastic city. And it's not the first time that the Abbott Foundation has had me here. I, uh, I think I gave a speech in uh, 1999 where I was sponsored by the Abbott Foundation. It's a very, I think, important and interesting organization doing the kind of work that needs to be done. And it's also always very moving for me to see an empty chair. I was at the Nobel Prize ceremony as president of Penn, and um, the kind of courage that someone like Lu Xiaobo has is an example, obviously, to all of us. And, you know, he got his Nobel Prize. He's in jail, so he can't defend himself. So it's really important to keep remembering that he and his wife and, of course, many others are um, locked up uh, out of out of hidden away from the possibility of making themselves heard. So um, here we are, uh, 
in one of the world's great cities. There's no question about that in my mind. This is the, if I had to leave Canada, this would be my next choice, and I don't just say that. I mean, it would be. Um, and everything looks great. I've been wandering around the streets since Friday afternoon. Everything looks, Friday morning, everything looks fabulous. It's all you know, nice and oiled and shiny and buffed, and uh, everybody looks great. And uh, um, I'm going to Hobart uh, tomorrow and from there to Melbourne, which it's like Toronto and Montreal. I can, I'm a courageous person, so I'm, I'll say Melbourne will also look wonderful. Um, and, um, but the interesting thing is that a couple of months ago or six weeks ago, I was in Barcelona and, as you, and in Madrid. And as you probably know, uh, Spain is bankrupt. Um, and uh, Barcelona and Madrid look just as shiny and buffed and happy and prosperous as Sydney. Very peculiar. 50% youth unemployment. And you walk down the streets of these great cities and it looks like Everybody's employed, everybody's having a good time, the cafes are full. And, and I checked, I asked everybody. Everybody agrees. It is true, 50% youth unemployment. They say that it's 25% unemployment overall and maybe 5%, so 20% really unemployed and 5% are on the black market. But, of course, that's worse because that means 5% are working without any pension payments, without any security at below... Uh, survival levels of uh, employment. So it, it, it's actually worse than 25% unemployment. It's, all, it's very odd. It, this is a very peculiar time. Um, prosperous countries like Australia and Canada, uh, countries which are bankrupt like Spain, countries which are bankrupt but know how to pretend they're not like France, um, uh, countries which are prosperous but feeling awful about it, like Germany. Um, they all, everybody's looking more or less the same in the developed economies. I mean, the United States probably shows the poverty more, but it's always been a class-based society, so its rich-poor divisions have always been more obvious uh, in spite of the rhetoric. Um, but still, New York is just sort of gleaming uh, in spite of the reality then the interesting thing is you sit down and you chat with people. I could take you aside and chat with any of you, and I've been doing it since I came here, and you just start asking questions, which is my annoying habit. And um, after a little while, you get past the, you know, we're great in any country, and then there's a sort of sense of loss that starts to appear, uh, a loss of direction, a sense that there isn't a direction, uh, uh, you scratch not very far with people under 25 and you find a real level of pessimism, even if they're not quite sure how to express that pessimism because it's such a complicated time. And there are all sorts of distractions which make it, you know, they're, they're traditional forms of pessimism. And they don't quite work anymore because of the complexity of this situation. But you can see that they're pretty pessimistic, really, even here. An incredible level of contempt for politicians, which, of course, is usually considered to be the stage just before a fascist or communist revolution. You know, When you have levels that level of contempt for your elected officials, then there's not really much reason to continue to be a democracy. So it doesn't mean it will happen in the old way, but it means there's a sort of discounting of the possibility of the importance 
of elected governments, and not just here. I mean, you may think you're special in having contempt for your politicians, but it's pretty generally felt. I mean, there's a little bit of optimism in France at the moment. Uh, uh, the government in England is sort of skating on a classic proto-fascist idea, which is you get people into uh, arenas playing sports, and if they cheer, it's good for the government. It's a sort of brave, you know, it's a 1984 theory of how to run a country. Uh, and I know it's bad to say anything bad about the Olympics here, but there you are. Um, I mean, I'm for the Olympics. It's just it shouldn't replace democracy. Uh, uh, of course, I'm particularly for the Winter Olympics, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, and the, what's interesting is that this, this really rather aggressive contempt for elected politicians, often justified, but, I mean, that's beside the point, um, is completely out of whack with what people feel about civil servants or private sector managers or, you know, CEOs of large joint stock companies who are private sector managers and always say they're, they're uh, managers in drag because they're pretending to be capitalists. Um, universities, university presidents, university professors, bank even bankers aren't held in as much contempt as politicians. Consultants, my God, consultants are almost admired. You know, pe people actually pay them to come in and do a quick look around and figure out what you already think and then go away and tell you it. Um, we do periodically blame a few CEOs. So right at the moment, I think you're blaming three heads of mining companies here, you know, and it's nice to have scapegoats. It's an old Western Judeo-Christian tradition to pick out a couple of people. Sometimes it's a race, sometimes a couple of individuals, and you feel a lot better because you've got somebody personal to blame. Of course, the fact that if you replaced those three people, they'd be replaced by identical people and nothing would have changed, but you'd feel better about it, you know, is a pretty important factor. Uh, but that scapegoating uh, is also a very dangerous sign about where is democracy going. And I think what it's really about is that we gave in with the beginning of globalization to the idea that m most things were going to be inevitable from now on through economics, that economics was going to set the direction for better or worse, left or right, and all the parties bought into it. I mean, labor as much as liberals, as much as neoconservatives, obviously. Every, everybody basically bought into it. Universities restructured their thought patterns in order to uh, accept the idea that in an era of specialism, speciality, and managerialism, either there was no need for great choices or great choices weren't possible anymore because things had become far too complicated. Um, and so we sort of slipped out of this era of choice. And once you slip out of an era of choice, then you really have to start asking yourself, what's the purpose of an elite? You know, all countries have elites. I mean, you can't, I mean, it doesn't matter what your political position is, even if you're an anarchist, and anarchists, as soon as they get to power, agree with everybody else. You know, somebody has to run stuff. As soon as you're in a company, somebody has to run it. If you're an NGO, somebody has to run it. They run it in different ways, with, against, whatever. But there always are elites. They may not last long. They may last a long time. But, you know, what's the purpose of an elite if there's no possibility of choice? If you can't actually change direction, if you can't actually use the single probably most interesting thing about human beings is that we can change our mind and actually do something different, if that's gone and things are essentially inevitable because 
it's all about the specialists and it's all about the methodology and it's all about managing things. Well, then, of course, a certain level of anger starts to build up, whether things are going well or badly. And eventually one ends up with contempt for the people who are supposed to be in charge because they keep saying there's nothing really much that I can change because they're simply voicing the... The, the, the theme, the theory, what backs up the era, which is, you know, just keep going. No big waves. Any big change is a sign of failure. Don't admit failure. There must be no admission of failure. I mean, see the financial collapse. Nobody's gone to jail. Nobody's been fired. The people who failed are in charge of fixing things up. Just keep on. It's the worst of Confucianism. You know, the, the professional smooth surface. There will be no waves. Which, of course, the worst of Confucianism is... The best of Confucianism is like Western democracy. The worst of Confucianism is like the Harvard Business School. It's all about uh, the impossibility of citizens taking responsibility. So this is, in a way, the... You know, I've often been in Australia, but I realize that this is the third time I've given what, for me can't speak for you, but for me is a really important speech. The one I gave in 99 was absolutely the first time I ever said that I thought globalism was over. And I remember saying it. It was, I think, going out that night on national television, and I thought to myself, as I said it, this is the end of my career, because uh, it was so bizarre to say it at the time. And then in 2010, again in Sydney, um, my interpretation of the financial collapse and what that meant, and then today. And there, if you actually look at the, uh, the last two speeches in this one, it's almost like three chapters of a book because it's, it's sort of looking at this era as we move out of globalism into whatever it is that we're moving into tomorrow. So in 1999, I talked about the end of globalism, which now, I mean, people are starting to understand what I meant by that, um, about how impossible it was to run a civilization, which we'd tried to do for several decades, from the point of view of economics. It just simply can't be done because economics isn't interesting enough. You know, it's not profound enough. It doesn't have any social meaning. It doesn't, it's, it's a nice third level speculative domain, which is important for running things. But you don't actually put your civilization together on the basis of economics. So it was obviously going to fail, and it began failing. And, um, but one of the things that was really frightening about that assumption that started in the 1970s of running everything from the point of view of economics was that uh, it meant you had to change what you were. You had to cease being what you'd spent a couple of hundred years becoming, which is citizens, uh, the guarantors of legitimacy in your society, and you had to become consumers, you had to become employees, you had to become people who were more self-interested than interested in the other, which was interesting because it meant that there had to be a deep refusal of the idea of all philosophy from anywhere, because all philosophy from everywhere uh, is about the other, and globalism is about selling something to the other. In other words, the other is not a person. They're just another consumer. So it was a rejection of thousands of years of Western and Eastern philosophy. I mean, don't realize how important the, the, the ideology was as a change in direction. And, of course, therefore, destined to fail. And it ended up meaning that we were really painting ourselves into this corner of being the servants of greed. Of course, we'd like to say that the CEOs and the managers and the bankers and the corrupt politicians were the servants of greed. But since, you know, we're the majority, I mean, we're just the smaller 
servants of greed. And that's what's supposed to make us happy, is that we're consuming and we're thinking about ourselves and about money. But we lost in that process a real sense of what power could be. Because if, if, if everything is about self-interest, then power becomes cynical. Power becomes uninteresting. And, of course, that gives good reason to be cynical about elected leadership, um, if that's all that power is. And, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons in the 70s and 80s, as a result of that, as, as, as political leaders and people in universities and journalists were saying, well, you know, with globalism, nation states are losing all their power and you really can't make any decisions anymore at a national level because we're all integrated at an international level, without ever thinking to themselves seriously that what this actually meant was they were declaring the end of democracy because democracy entirely functions on the basis of where people live, their responsibility in the place they live, over their village, over their street, over their state, over their country. And that's how people, as individuals, as responsible individuals, get to express what they think and their desire for change. Once you accept the theory that it's all global and it's all happening in markets, then you've actually accepted that democracy is over, that it's finished. And so, of course, we went on voting and we went on electing people, but we'd actually accepted that we were wasting our time. And so generation after generation of people started coming up and hearing this and feeling this and didn't join political parties. Just look at the membership in political parties, how it's shrunk over the last 50 years. And they didn't join political parties and they went out um, to become the enemies of of selfishness, if you like, the enemies of globalism, and they started NGOs. You know, Penn was actually really the first NGO, although it's not an NGO in the modern sense because it's grassroots, in 1921. But, you know, up until the 80s, there were just a few thousand NGOs around the world. There are millions of them now. There are tens of millions of people who are four or five generations now who've gone into NGOs, started NGOs. They went viral, the whole NGO concept that why would I... Why would I dirty my hands by going into politics when I can stand for the environment by belonging to and name them, right? There are thousands and thousands of environmental NGOs. When I can do this and I can do that. It's, and, and it's pointless to be in Parliament. Parliament has no power. Actually, a single backbench MP in Canberra has more power than the head of Greenpeace. Period. That is true. Because a single backbench MP can drive a minister and a deputy minister crazy, which Greenpeace can't do. And I'm not attacking Greenpeace. I'm not saying don't join Greenpeace. I'm not saying that. I'm saying power is power. Democracy is about ideas and using those ideas to get power to do things. But once you give up on the idea of democracy actually functioning at the local, state, and national level as of primary importance, then, of course... And says, well, in that case, why don't I try to do influence instead of power? And NGOs are all about influence. And youth went off and became lobbyists, lobbyists for good causes, right? as opposed to you know, Washington lobbyists, a different kind. But still, it's the same sector, if you like. And, of course, that in turn fed contempt for political power because as the decades have gone by, we've seen that even though there are millions and millions and millions of people in NGOs, they haven't been able to get the people who have power to do what they want. So as it doesn't work, as influencing doesn't work, people become more and more angry and therefore more and more bitter about the politicians. So I'm saying something which may not be popular. Um, I'm used to that. Uh, 
And, and I said this last time in the second speech. You know, I quoted T.S. Eliot, who was an old cynic, great poet, old cynic. And he's, quote, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Now, I actually am not a cynic. I'm what you'd call an optimistic pessimist, which I think is a, you know, optimists are very dangerous and pessimists are really horrible. And um, so you either have to be a pessimistic optimist or an optimistic pessimist. And I think optimistic pessimists are the people who are waiting for the worst but working like hell for the best. And it's a, it's a good position. Anyway, so I don't actually agree with him, but I think that we've been acting for several decades as if he were right. And that's the problem. And so, you know, there are all these examples of that and, and you know, as, as we've been incapable of maintaining, for example, our production through our manufacturing sector, all of the developed economies have increasingly turned towards uh, the dream world to produce these fabulous city-states. Uh, with a fabulous life in them, and one of them has been to say, well, we don't dirty our hands anymore. We, we don't make things. We leave that to, you know, whoever it is over there. We imagine things. That's consultants. Um, we trade in things that other people make, and then we trade in that most illusory of things, which is money. So, you know, in the 1970s, there was six times more currency traded than real goods, which is a fairly standard historical. It's a little above the historical levels. By the 1980s, it was 25 times more currency being traded than real goods. By 1995, it was 50 times more. And now nobody really knows. I think it's something like 150 times more. That's pure inflation. It's pure delusional activity. It has nothing to do with society, real growth, uh, new kinds of growth, uh, civilization. It's delusional. And we've seen a couple of examples of what happens when somebody says the souffle is falling, which is what happened a couple of years ago. Um, so I think that one of the things that we have to do to find our way out of that kind of delusional behavior is first we have to stop using the word globalism, globalization, and talk about internationalism, which is to free ourselves of that theory as an approach and use other words. And we have to admit what I've said, which is not admitted by our economics department, which is that whether you're a socialist, social democrat, conservative, liberal, uh, private sector, public sector, the interesting thing is that the developed economies over a 200-and-something-year period since the late 18th century succeeded uh, through a whole series of things, governmental and private, in moving from uh, uh, economies which were permanently in... Uh, and shortages, which causes competition and keeps prices up, uh, we moved into surpluses. We used the technology. We invented the technology. We've been living in surp surplus economies in, the, in most of the world, in the, in the developed economies. And once you get into surplus, prices start falling. And once the prices started falling, uh, you can no longer maintain a middle-class society as a theory for the whole society. You can no longer run factories because you can't pay people enough because the prices are falling because you have too many goods. And so we used as an excuse, we'll get the Chinese to do it first because they can do it cheap. It's always presented that the Chinese drove us out or the Indians drove us out. It isn't that. We drove ourselves out through our success. And didn't actually, because we didn't stop and think about it because we only believed in continuity not actually new ideas, we didn't actually stop and say, hey, we're no longer 
lacking goods. We have a surplus of goods, so we have to change our theory. We have to redo everything. You know, it's not a bad idea every hundred years or so to just re-examine what you believe about how you're doing things. We refused to do that, so we ended up with a kind of unconscious Walmartization of society, which is based on the idea that it's good for the workers as their wages drop to give them cheaper goods, as opposed to understanding that you're not actually doing anything for the workers, you're actually passively giving in to a spiral downwards caused by the surplus, which was a success, and it's caused by a refusal to say, let's do it differently. Let's think about it differently. The move towards a service-based uh, economy, which you know means people with MAs work in restaurants, um, you know, or or w without any really solid income or sitting staring at uh, IT machines, um, rise return of unstable employment. I've been told. Yesterday, I was sitting with a whole bunch of, of labor leaders, and they tell me that it is accepted the number that 40% of Australians have precarious employment. And I think that's probably pretty standard around the developed economies. I mean, that's an amazing rollback of the progress that we made without there being any serious discussion about what is the theory, what has happened, what could we do about it, where are we really going, could we go in another direction? And that's because we accepted this idea that economics would drive it, that the managers would manage it, that the politicians can't make major choices, that the specialists would make all the decisions, and therefore there's not much we can do. We just sort of float along. The, this is, of course, odd because, you know, Australia is doing pretty well at the moment, and so is Canada, as a matter of fact. But just... I, would point out to you that, that 40 years ago when globalization really got going, the message was that um, uh, we would stop having dirty hands, that we would become more sophisticated, that we would let other people do the ugly stuff, and we would have more complex economies in places like Australia and Canada. And yet today, your country and mine are more dependent on mining and oil and gas than we were before globalization. In other words, we've gone backwards. In spite of how nice our cities look, we've actually gone backwards. And we haven't talked about why, how, how could it possibly be with so many computers and so many people sending so many emails that actually if you remove the mining sector from the uh, Australian economy, you'd be a third world economy. How is it possible? Why are we not talking about this? As opposed to simply disliking a few mining companies or in Canada, a few oil and gas companies. Um, so it's fine for us to be fine because you know, we were so brilliant that our forebears who either came or were sent and had absolutely no idea where they're going or what was going to happen when they got there. But somehow in their bones, they knew that one day we'd be, they'd be really wit, rich because stuff would be found under the ground. I mean, we're so smart. We're so sophisticated that we figured this out. That's a joke, right? It's, it's a very unpleasant joke, but it's a joke. I said that in Alberta the other day, and there was, which is the oil. You know, Alberta is the principal supplier of oil and gas to the United States of the world, not Saudi Arabia. There was a terrible silence in the audience when I said that. But, you know, so brilliant to have come as dirt-poor farmers, knowing full well that in 100 years oil would be found under the ground. I mean, so sophisticated. So smart. Anyway, um, the problem with commodities, even if it's fine for the moment, I mean, I'm not suggesting that you give it up and become poor. 
you know. The problem with commodities is that we know, we've got thousands of years since we know that in, with commodities, quite naturally, the profit goes to very few corporations and very few people. It's always been that way. We know that commodities, uh, mining, timber, oil and gas, that kind of stuff, is profoundly anti-egalitarian, profoundly anti-democratic. It's, it's that kind of industry. It always has been. There's a long, long history of it. It is very destabilizing for societies. It's very top-down because it can be controlled by small numbers of people. And the wealth is usually pretty temporary. Um, it only works in the long run if governments therefore citizens, actually decide that they are going to be incredibly strict about deforming the economy created by commodities in order to make it work for a citizen-based democracy. You actually have to consciously deform it in order to make it not destructive. Now, I was here about the time that the, um, one of your previous governments brought in a, a new tax, announced a new tax on mining, and well, I, I'm not an expert in that. I know there's been another one since. Um, so I can't make a comment on that actual original tax. But what's really interesting about it, if you're kind of looking at Brazil or Argentina or the Belgian Congo, okay, is how easily, how quickly it was possible to destroy the legislation destroy the government, destroy the prime minister, and stop it. Now, you may say, well, this isn't Argentina. I mean, there's no troops in the streets. There wasn't a Peronist coup d'etat or anything. But what happened was absolutely classic commodity-dependent economy stuff. That's the way it works when you're dependent on commodities. And I could give you examples of that sort from Canada as well. It's classic 19th century anti-democratic. Whether you were for or against the bill is secondary. I'm talking about the way it was done, what actually happened as if it was really easy. The other thing is commodity-dependent economies are dependent on other economies in a particular way. And so when things go wrong, they go wrong really fast because you just... You know, you can't turn anywhere else. This is, you know, this is big stuff. Fills ships. And you can't just turn around and say, does anybody want all this stuff? It's not like the shoe market. There's no flexibility really in it. Um, so, in a sense, there we are doing wonderfully in Sydney and Toronto. And yet, in many ways, philosophical ways, the philosophy of democracy and economics, we're back in the 19th century. Uh, these cities, these wonderful cities, our technology allows us to pretend that we're in the 21st century um, and that we have some virtual postmodern future. The reality is big blocks of stuff coming out of the ground the way it always has. And that's part, I think, of what young people feel, which is they can't figure out the relationship between what causes the wealth and what they're supposed to be uh, doing. And of course, then they have these lives, staring at screens, sitting down. Um, you know, it's, it is a fairly inactive life. 
I mean, it's a very odd life to have lost all our physical activity so that we, have, we live in cities and we don't want to become big balls of fat. Uh, we have to turn off the screens and go to a gym where they have air conditioning. It's very odd. I mean, Sydney's a bit better. You can go to the, the, the pools and the outdoor pools. And I went on Friday to Redleaf Bay and Saturday, and it's really fabulous. But, you know, nevertheless, it's an odd life. And there's a kind of pessimism coming out of that odd life, particularly when you don't know what kind of career you could possibly have for most young people. You don't know where it's going to lead. You don't know what relationship it's going to have to society. And there's a kind of loss of that sense of the relationship between belonging somewhere and the possibility of action, which is central to um, an examined life, a life of some satisfaction for you and perhaps your family. So this is an Australian-Canadian special case, but it's only, you know, there are lots of special cases. Uh, Greece is a special case. Spain is a special case. And, 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 and I'll just, this is the last kind of negative thing, really, is, is that um, last night I came in quite late and turned on television, and there was a very fancy ad on television advertising food banks giving money to food banks because one in ten Australians are somehow going to food banks. Odd. Curious. But what's interesting about it is the normalization of our incredibly sophisticated societies in a 30-year period that we've accepted that we could go back to mid-19th century Judeo-Christian charity for 10% of the population. And we would treat that as normal, that we would not be actually horrified that we would not be in the streets in the millions in order to prevent there being food banks. Exactly the same thing throughout Europe, in Canada, and the United States. So in other places, the problem looks a bit different. You know, the financial crisis is elsewhere. The reason you don't have a financial crisis in Canada doesn't have a financial crisis is A, the commodities, and B, that we have a really dozy banking uh, industry, uh, which is heavily regulated. And that's what deposit banking should be, fairly mediocre, uh, not adventurous, not exciting, because as soon as banking, deposit banking gets exciting, you're on the edge of a total collapse. You leave that to the merchant bankers. You don't want to mix those two things up. So we were really smart by being mediocre, if you see what I mean. And people are upset about this idea that, you know, no, deposit banks are not supposed to be fun. And they're not supposed to be intellectual. They're just supposed to be places you can put your money and take it out. And they can lend it in the safest possible ways. Anyway, so we, we came out of that quite well. The other places were not as careful as us. They got into this terrible financial crisis. Nobody's being punished. The same people are still in charge. The economics departments continue to teach exactly what they taught before as if nothing had happened. It's really the slowest people in the world are probably the economists, with a few exceptions. They just don't learn. They think we're so dumb because we haven't learned to do what they tell us to do, which is a theory and therefore true. Um, but, the, the, you know, I just ask myself questions. When did saving a bank, you know, out of this crisis, when did saving a bank become more important than saving a country or its citizens? When did, when did social scientists tenured professors begin to believe that the source of legitimacy in a democracy wasn't you, citizens, but was administration and commercial contracts. Um, why are personal debts and state debts wrapped up in cheap, romantic Christian moralizing, while private sector debt is just utilitarian stuff? 
What is that differentiation? Why does a healthy society mean a society which is stimulated to consume, which is a very uninteresting idea of civilization, to be polite? Uh, so we're in an era when power, as a result of the things I've been talking about, and thinking are not equated. There's almost no relationship in the developed economies, democracies, between power and thought. It's an era when managers and most politicians don't read. Uh, the most they can read is maybe a two or three page briefing paper, which isn't written in any known language except for managerialism. So it's not something that could have any effect because it's meant to be dead language. And the result of that is that we slip into this sort of passive idea of stability and continuity, and we lose this idea of choice, uh, the fundamental cho choice central to democracy. So you have this debt crisis. And I, wrote, I went back to Voltaire's Bastards and read the chapter on debt called The, the, the Miracle of the Lows. And there is, I'm thrilled there isn't a word to change. I mean, it's as bad now as it was then, but it's got worse, in fact. And I just would remind you of one thing I talked about in there, which is how smart people deal with debt. And it was the first time, modern time, which was Athens, Solon, whatever that, how many thousand years ago that is. I always get it wrong. And he was brought in, a great poet. He was brought in to be, for one year, the head of government because they were so deeply in debt that a large number of the citizens had lost their rights to citizenship because they owed money to the bankers who were the aristocracy. And they had the draconian code, which meant that it was very, very ferocious what happened when you're in debt. So he came to power, and basically on the first day, he returned all the forfeited land, let's call it houses with mortgages. He freed all the citizens who had lost their rights to citizenship through debt. And he then very quickly replaced the draconian code, legal code, with a new legal code, which is the basis of what we all have today, fair laws for just societies. And, and in one year, he created the basis of what we claim is Western civilization. And he did it through choices, imagination, and ripping up the debts. So today, the United States or Europe could quite easily have said, here's what we're going to do. Everybody who uh, has a mortgage, everybody, we're not going to pick and choose, up to a certain amount, so I don't know what you want to make it, let's say $300,000. Uh, we're going to pay them off. We're paying off all the mortgages. With one stroke of the pen, we're printing the money anyway, right? We spent far more than that. Well, I mean, we spent far more than that giving the money to the banks. So it's not that this, this is the cheap solution. And you would have, one stroke, you would have... Uh, removed debt from a large percentage of the population, including the ones who weren't in trouble, like me, you know, and I would have been very happy. And then suddenly, because I wasn't in debt with my mortgage, I would have been free to borrow and spend. And, of course, the money that you gave me would have gone to the banks, so you would have saved the banks at the same time. Easy. It took me 30 seconds to say it to you. It's really easy. It's not complicated. But you have to agree that there is something called thought and choice. Another tougher way of doing it would have been for the government to simply cancel all the mortgages. That would have been a more um, Solon-esque way. So that would have done the same thing for the citizens, freed them of all debt, 
put them in a position to spend and borrow. It would have cleaned out the banking community. But as I pointed out to you a little while ago, we're at 150 times you know, trading in currency compared to where we were in the 1970s. So if we lost, you know, they always say, oh, we're desperate. We've got to have the banks or we'll have a depression. It's not true at all. We could clear out half of the banks of the European and American banks, easily clear out half of them, and we'd be far better off. It's only because they believe that a post-manufacturing society has to waste its time with all this playing with paper, virtual paper, that they're terrified to hurt the banks. Also, they're friends of the bankers, but that's a sort of secondary thing. Or you could have done it kind of half and half. You know, you print half the money and you rip up half the debt. Anyway, the point is there are real choices. There are real ideas out there if you accept the idea of choice. Um, the problem for, I think, the young last four or five generations is, as I said in the beginning, fell into this trap. They believed what they were told, which was there was no power in politics. There was no purpose in politics, that it had all gone elsewhere. And so they left it. And so in good part, and I feel sorry for politicians in many ways because it's a really horrible life, but to a great extent, it's a bit like after the First World War when they were missing you know, a whole generation of young men they were just discovering that there were women, uh, but men are very slow about these things. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they were missing these millions and millions of men. Well, in effect, the last 30 years, we've been missing probably several hundred million young people from the real rough-and-tumble world of power, of taking power, passing laws, and changing things. And that has been a disaster for our democracies, because it has, in fact, made real what isn't true. It has made real the idea that governments are relatively uh, powerless. And it's a very embittering experience after a while, you know, when you've been working to save this or do that in an NGO, and it just doesn't happen. It just, it's actually, I, nobody's done a real study of this. It could be the precursor to a lot of people getting into their 40s and becoming so bitter about both the NGOs and politics that they give up on the idea of public society completely. It could be a precursor to something extremely dangerous and unpleasant from the point of view of our society. The fact is, influence is just influence. And power is just power unless you have real ideas, in which case it's democracy and it has a direction and it has a purpose and it has ethics. Um, it takes a lot of courage to go into politics and to make real choices. Uh, you, have to, you can't do it alone. You can't do it just out of ego. I mean, you have to have ego. It's like being a writer. If you don't have ego, you're dead. But, but you have to have a thick skin. You have to be insulted on a daily basis. You have to have your husband or wife come to detest you and accept that. Your children absolutely loathe you. Um, that's part of being in politics. Uh, but, you know, look at the environmental movement. You know, this is the biggest NGO movement. 50 years. I'm, I worked when I was in my 20s for Maurice Strong, who's one of the three founders of the modern international environmental movement, the sort of St. Paul of the environmental movement, if you like. And uh, really amazing guy. He's still alive. And I see him quite regularly. There are millions of us who've worked in the environmental movement. And we've made a few victories. You know, we've saved some whales and we've saved some forests and uh, we've gotten rid of some plastic bags. And, um, you know, you can make a nice list. 
and feel good about it, and particularly middle-class people. I mean, you know, we could really feel pretty good because of what we eat and what we drink and don't drink and where we buy stuff. Yeah. But if you actually stack back, stand back and look at the environmental movement over a 50-year period, we have failed. Lobbying has failed. It is a 100% failure. Millions and millions of people have given hundreds of millions of hours, and all the important areas are blocked. In fact, we're going backwards in spite of our tiny victories. And all the major things are tied up in bureaucracies, they're tied up in you know, old-fashioned ideas of growth and of self-interest and the lowest level of politics. Uh, and change seems impossible. It seems impossible for us to move this forward, even though it'll probably destroy us. I mean, that's the sign of a degenerate civilization that knows that it's doing something that will destroy it and can't bring itself to do anything about it. But of course, the fact is that parliaments can pass laws. If, if those millions of people in the environmental movement had, of course, created the NGOs, but in addition had started not just the Green Party, but had actually gone into all the parties. Look at the women's movement. You have to go into all the parties. And had taken over the parties. Yeah, you know, the neoconservatives took power by coup d'etats inside conservative parties, often quite left-of-center conservative parties. And small groups, sort of Bolshevik groups, of neoconservatives went in and took over these parties and made them go off in this direction. They proved, the people who said that democracy was dead and that globalism was what mattered, those people took over the political parties. Those people changed the direction of society using power. Well, people who are in the center left said, oh my goodness, there's no point in going into politics. I'm going to save whatever through influence. And then there's millions of really, really smart people in the environmental movement trying desperately to convince the people they detest who are in power to do the opposite of what they're going to do. Are you surprised it hasn't worked? So this isn't an attack on Greenpeace or anything. I mean, it's just a Canadian organized nation in the beginning. And so. It's not that. I'm talking about how democracy works and the mistake that's been made. And... We also made a terrible mistake at the intellectual level because we didn't really think, well, if this era is so different, is the philosophy coming out of Europe, Western Europe, that's been built up over several thousand years, does it really deal with what's happening to us now? And I think for Australians, this is particularly interesting, and for Canadians. Um, and, you know, if you look at the environmental question, you say, well, okay, because, well, you know, you may not think philosophy is matter it matters, but, of course, philosophy is at the roots of how we come at almost everything. You know, Socrates and Plato, they're there. You can't get rid of them. They're, they're, in the most mediocre moment of the most uninteresting deal, they're there because they help define the idea that human beings are above the place or above nature, the rational idea of the, you know, the triangular structure of society and all the rest of it. So we never went back and said, well, wait a minute. We need to restructure the philosophy departments. We actually need to blow them up. Actually blow them up. I mean, you can ask the people who were hired there to leave first and then come back after it's blown up and you put it back together in a completely different way because otherwise you're left with this thing of this philosophy which, you know, you've been in Australia a couple of hundred years. Uh, if I go to a philosophy course, it is absolutely clear in any philosophy course that you haven't had an idea in your heads for 200 years. That's what's taught in philosophy. And Canadians, we haven't had an idea either. You can't even get Marshall McLuhan into philosophy because you can't fit him in properly into European philosophy. So the fact that the whole of you know, modern concepts of communication came out of Harold Innes and Marshall McLuhan and stuff out of Canada, 
It's nowhere in the philosophy departments because it's all about, you know, Socrates and Plato and Athens and Rome and then Rome again and the Enlightenment and England and France and Germany. And then we get the sort of way down the colonial line. We get to learn this stuff. And the best we can hope for is some professors who are experts in Immanuel Kant. You know, we can interpret what they have told us is the truth. So in environmental terms, what you end up having is, is that the roots of environmental theory are people like Rousseau, you know, for whom the nature was having lunch with his mistress, Madame de Warren, somewhere in the pre-Alps, and then leaving the lovely little chateau after lunch and walking through the park with all the trees planted in rows with a servant behind him carrying um, his drink. That's nature. You know, he doesn't know anything about... Uh, uh, brown snakes or, you know, or mosquitoes or things that bite you and kill you or, um, you know, in Canada, he doesn't know anything about black flies, which is, uh, and mosquitoes are national birds. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so we haven't actually looked at, you know, and one of the interesting things about Australia and Canada is that if you just step outside of all the discussions about what happened with Aboriginal people, with Native people, what went wrong, what might be going a bit better now. Just step outside and have a look at it and you say, well, who is there out there that has some alternate philosophies which actually don't put human beings in a superior position? Well, actually, interestingly enough, you'll find it here in Australia. You'll find it in Canada. These are really interesting postmodern philosophies if you listen carefully to them. And you say, well, that's... And start shrugging and can you do a PhD on that? What about the footnotes and their oral and all that sort of stuff? I'm terribly sorry. That isn't what truth is about. Truth is not about footnotes. It's not about references to Immanuel Kant. And it's, it's about here's an idea which is not linear and not coming out of rationality. Here are ideas which are actually circular. They're conceptual. They're very, very interesting. And they actually link you back to some of the most interesting things about Socrates and so on. But you have it here. We have it in Canada. There are other places where these ideas exist, but they have to be put into the center of what we teach in our departments of philosophy. So um, what I'm really getting up in all of this is that um, we haven't... You know, we've made all these different kinds of progress. We're better on things like minorities, even though they're still major problems. We're better on questions of how to deal with the outsiders, although they're, you know, problem. things keep coming back. Fear keeps raising its head, you know. What are we going to do with these people? Um, uh, in spite of the fact that, you know, anybody who's willing to risk their life to come to a place like Canada or Australia has already proved that they're courageous and they're conscious, and they're determined. Those are three pretty good characteristics for a citizen, if you ask me, you know. The rest, you know, that's very different from saying this person's willing to invest $100,000, so they must be a good immigrant. A, they haven't proved that they actually believe in the place. They've just proved they got money. So, uh, you know, we have made progress in some ways, but I think one of the interesting little details is that coming out of all of this theory which dominates today is an idea of linearity and an idea of speed, that brains is speed. Everything is about faster you get it done, the better it is, as long as you're not changing anything. And we're completely missing the point that there is nothing in history, in any society, which indicates that speed is a sign of intelligence, apart from 
the, apart from the Olympics, and, um, and short moments in military activities and takeovers. So it's like a, you know, it's like a, a young man's idea of making love, you know? Quite fast, you know? And, um, uh, I mean, I'm just making a joke. Uh, and uh, it, 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 speed is not the essence of civilization. The essence of civilization is consideration. And I think one of the most interesting things that we've been doing really quite well, is we've been moving away from an idea that people who have disabilities are to be somehow put to the side. And we're gradually understanding, those of us who pretend we don't have disabilities, are gradually understanding that they have major contributions to make. And they're not major contributions to be made apart they're actually major contributions to be made. And I, I'm very involved with a lot of people. And we, who, and we all say, you know, the best thing we can do is to bring people, whatever their disabilities are, is to bring them into the absolute center of what we're doing. Because for one thing, they'll slow us down because of whatever their disability is. And they'll be thinking about it all the time because they're thinking consciously a lot harder than, you know, the business school people are thinking. And they're considering a lot more what the difficulties of society are, and they understand those difficulties better than most of us in a myriad of ways. And I, I mean, I'm, the reason I'm saying this to you is, you know, the, the solutions to our problems do not lie in a continuation of the approaches that we're taking. I think you would find our universities and our schools would be much more interesting if we actually found ways, we're doing it, but much more to build in all the variety of people with disabilities so that there would be a whole other way of thinking and acting, which would be very important to us. So the point of all these things that I'm saying to you is that we have to stop going down this utilitarian, pseudo-rational road, uh, this managerial road. We have to go back to the idea that power is about choice and that it comes from the ideas arising out of the citizenry, out of responsible individualism, that it doesn't come from specialization, even though we need specialization. It doesn't come from managerialism. It's the last place ideas come from. We need managerialism, but it should not be dominant. Managerialism is not leadership. It's methodology. That's all it is. Uh, and it certainly shouldn't be coming from ideology. We need to be looking at our education systems. Just at the moment when we're making our education systems more and more utilitarian, you know, that our kids got to get jobs. And so we're training them to do stuff that's probably already obsolete. Um, we, this is the moment to be actually rethinking education to make it much more humanist, much less linear, much more about doubt, much more interdisciplinary. It's the moment to be actually saying that humanism is the most powerful tool we've got, thinking, learning what a risk is, because if you don't understand what real risk is, you can't understand what changes are and that language is all about communication, not about avoiding discussion, which is what most of the formal public language is today. Ministers give speeches written for them by people. Most of them haven't even read them in advance. I'm used to seeing this. You can always tell whether they've even opened it in advance by the way they start, the little look of startlement on their face. <laughs> they, say, they say, oh, oh, I'm going to say that. And then they try to figure out how to say it. And I'm probably 70% of the speeches given by ministers they haven't read before they give them. I would say 70%, when you? I think it's probably about 70%. I've actually seen two ministers waiting, three ministers waiting to give a speech, and they're all written by the same person uh, as a friend of mine. And when the first speech was given, he rushed over and grabbed the other two speeches and inverted them because he thought it would sound better, you know, 
So, I mean, we have to move away from that kind of managerial specialist sound to where people take real risks in, in public. And, you know, something like dealing with the debt crisis would have shown what we're actually capable of doing. Dealing, getting rid of the idea of speed would be important. Convincing people that NGOs are fine, but actually the filth of power the horribleness of politics is much more important. We could have done almost every we want, everything we want to do in the environmental area by now if those people had gone into politics at the local, state, national level with all the effects that that has at the international level. So is this vague, what I'm saying? Is it romantic? I don't think it is at all. I mean, just, you know, for example, here you are. You're prosperous for the reasons that we know. Um, and yet, your government and your opposition are both talking about the need for austerity. Why are they talking about austerity? Because all sensible governments are talking about austerity. Because austerity is the way out of the crisis. Can you give me a single example in 2,500 years of a program of austerity producing prosperity? One example. That's all. And I'll change my mind. There is no example of austerity producing prosperity. Sometimes you can use it to stabilize things you know, when you're in a crisis. But as soon as it's stabilized, you have to move out of austerity because otherwise it just drags everything to a halt. So this kind of way of thinking I'm talking about requires a level of consciousness, a level of imagination, of risk-taking, of ethics, of courage, of thinking about budgets as moments for imagination uh, and intelligence, of uh, jettisoning ideas like the GDP, which is a 19th century idea which hasn't made sense for at least 50 years. It doesn't measure anything that's useful to us at all. It doesn't tell us where we're going or where we've been. They're not even measuring the right stuff, and they're not measuring it right. That's why they can't handle things like being in surplus and so on or what to do with too many educated people from the point of view of the DGDP approach. So we need to invent new ideas of how societies are going to work, new ideas of what well-being looks like, back to the idea that citizenship is the ultimate wealth, uh, that the basics of internationalism is that people come from somewhere and they live somewhere and they belong somewhere. That's not cheap nationalism. It's the reality. If you don't believe that people live somewhere, you can't have democracy. You know, so everybody's moving around. Yeah, one half of a percent of the population is moving around on a regular basis. Most people are not moving around. They live somewhere. They might change states or cities, but they don't have that kind of mobility. So you have to go back to the idea of belonging. That's the basis of democracy. We belong somewhere, even if we're going to change that. That's a big decision as well. So by pretending otherwise, we lose that idea that you're from somewhere and therefore you have the power to choose, to change things, to put laws in place, to tax people, not to tax people, whatever. And if you accept, uh, go on accepting this idea that everything's moving around and therefore we don't have choices, then we will continue to disenfranchise new generations and they will become more and more angry. What's going to happen next, I think, if it's good, will happen through very specific engagements, the taking of power, a comfort with the reality that risk in public office and choices which change direction are a sign of intelligence, not a sign of instability, of mental instability, which is basically what we believe now. And if we do that, then I think 
will be in a very interesting direction. And there are places where that's happening. You look at India. Most of India accepted the international idea of industrial agriculture with catastrophic results. Kerala decided they would move towards a co-op system for their dairy industry, and as a result, it's become one of the most successful exporting areas of India. Um, we have to be thinking about things like guaranteed annual incomes as a way of reducing costs and getting rid of concepts of charity. We have to be thinking seriously about value-added, not just in wine and food, but value-added in all sorts of areas, as opposed to cheaper goods, actually more complex and perhaps more expensive goods. In other words, understanding that if you have real costs of production, you can pay people real amounts of money and you can actually have a middle-class society, which is what you should do when you're in a surplus situation. We have to think about careers in a non-linear way. We have to stop thinking about, oh, you're taking a year off, or you started at what age, or you're being promoted in what way. This no longer makes sense. These are very old-fashioned ideas for careers when we've doubled life expectancy in 100 years. It simply doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't give people real choices about how to live their careers. We have to start laughing out loud every time we're told that something's inevitable apart from death and sex. Those are the only two things. Taxes are not inevitable, but death and sex are inevitable to some extent. Well, one of them is inevitable and the other to some extent. Um, and But everything else involves choices. It is not inevitable. So every day we're being told by people with power that something's inevitable. You just have to laugh in their face and treat them like fools and get rid of them unless they're willing to make choices. And there's no reason to be afraid of that. Choices are fun once you get used to it. Living by the seat of your pants is sort of fun once you get used to it. And once you realize it's a characteristic of the citizenry, it's a characteristic of stability, taking risks and changing direction, then you think about it very difficult. So they can be upsetting choices. It's not smooth. It's not managerial. But it's not in the ether. Choices are made here. They're made by you. And while you do need to go on trying to influence power, you also need to get your hands as dirty as possible by trying to take power. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much to John for that. Um, I don't know that we'll all be rushing out to get our hands dirty in the filth of power, but I'm sure we're inspired to give it a good try. We have um, come to the end of our official time, but I know that there are some of you who would have pressing questions for John, so that we will be able to take a couple of questions. Um, if anybody does need to leave, obviously feel free to do that now. But if you do have a question uh, that is uh, a burning question, we have two microphones here down the front. Uh, and while we're finding out if we have people in that case, I want to change topics slightly because I know we'll come back to what you've just talked about, but it's very interesting to me at a time where you've had a, a sequence of very significant non-fiction books where we're living in a ferment of the ideas that you've written about that you have returned to writing fiction um, and written a book that uh, brings to life a whole lot of ideas but why was it important for you to do that in a fictional form? 
I have, with dark diversions. I have no rational explanation. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, I, I've, I've wanted to go back to fiction for a long time, and I think yeah. I'm going to write an essay after this and then another big novel. And this is a really fun little thing. It's a picaresque novel uh, with a fairly unpleasant narrator who wanders around meeting rich people. It's a you know, picaresque novel, so instead of being on a horse or a donkey, he's on an airplane. So he starts in the most expensive hotel in Italy, and then he goes to... I'm thinking uh, George Marrakech. Clooney. <laughs> yes, he'd be pretty good, actually. <laughs> and he sort of doesn't want to get involved with all these really incredibly rich people as they destroy each other and uh, act badly and so on. And in his spare time, he, goes, he has a hobby, which is going around and interviewing dictators. And uh, so uh, he goes and interviews Baby Doc and um, uh, Ian Paisley and, uh, and so on. And um, Dan Francofini and stuff. And it's quite fun because, of course, I've met a lot of dictators and they have absolutely no conversation at all. I mean, if you're a dictator, you don't need any conversation. You know? No, you just need an entourage. Yeah, and they sort of nod. And um, so it's really fun to write about that because, in a way, you're writing about their shoes and uh, their socks and, uh, you know, what, what kind of curtains and uh, what are their gestures and uh, how do they walk and, all the things that you have to put aside, if I guess, if you're talking about what they mean in terms of ideas or in terms of geopolitical well, of politics. You, yeah, except you kind of realise, you know, it's the novelist trick, that yeah. you actually, through all this irrelevance, you actually realise what's really going on. Whereas if you actually try to go straight at it, there's nothing to be said. I mean, you know, one, two or three gestures of Baby Doc, nothing he said but gestures were enough to tell you exactly how it functioned and the way people were around him in his palace. It's just, I mean, you, this is fiction, but all fiction is true. I mean, and, and, you know, the truth of fiction usually lasts longer than nonfiction. So yeah. uh, it's much more solid than fact. And um, so anyway, all of these dictators are people I've met. And um, Baby Doc was amazing in his sort of uh, pretend petit trianon palace. Um, with a thick white wool carpet and enormous, everything was white, mm. cream white, just amazingly expensive silk. And, uh, and he was so fat that when he was one of those men, when he walked, his legs separated at his knees. You know what I mean? That kind of, and uh, he couldn't make the intercom work in his office. And, and it was surrounded by these Tante Makut and, uh, and soldiers in this palace, which was like this sort of frozen idea of, of glamour. But he was surrounded by all these people with big pot bellies and pistols in their pockets and men with guns not quite sure where to put the guns because they were bumping into each other. And, <laughs> and actually, uh, it's in the story. Uh, uh, he, he asked uh, the narrator asks to go and see some destruction from a hurricane and uh, is lent a helicopter by the president. And when the president leaves, one of the advisors to the president, Tonton Makut, goes up to a guy sitting outside the office behind an old typewriter, pulls out his pistol and points his pistol at the guy with the typewriter and says, get a, get a helicopter for him. Now, the point about that is, you don't have to explain it, but the point about it is, it wasn't that he was going to shoot the guy. Mm. It was that all power in Haiti was done on the basis of violence. So even though this poor sod sitting behind the desk was going to do whatever he was told, the only way you could give an order was by pointing a gun at somebody. You know, it's very interesting. <laughs> very interesting. And the last one is a conversation. It's called uh, Conversation with the Assassin of a Dictator. And that was the last surviving member of the Black Hand, which was the terrorist group that assassinated the Archduke Ferdinand mm. in Sarajevo in 1914. And um, I met him 
when he was 90 years old. It was the most astonishing, astonishing conversation where I wanted to talk about his role in bringing Western civilization to an end, and he wanted to talk about computers. It was... <laughs> but, <laughs> but the book is... It, it, it's, 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 it's a sort of view of money out of control in the 80s and 90s, and it's mm. fun. The idea is a very black comedy that as you're vomiting, you're laughing. You know, and, sort of <laughs> and there's absolutely no hint of moral redemption. None. <laughs> No more redemption. Well, that's something to look forward to, I think. <laughs> I, think I think that tradition of, of black comedy is very, very important. Mm. Actually, and my last novel for that, The um, Paradise Eater, was also a comedy in that sort of tradition. And um, people are, there used to be more of them, but you know, kind of severe comedy. Yeah. You know, not Baroque comedy. I mean, no. Something very, with a very, very serious set of thought. Well, I think in the age of uh, Asa finding out far too much far more than we want to know about the Assad shopping habits or Saddam Hussein's decorations. I think we all uh, would, would, uh, would see those dictators with great interest. Um, we might uh, close... Are there no questions? No questions. I can't believe this. You've, we've, talked them into, we've talked them into submission. There is? <laughs> but yes. we're going to need you to come to a microphone if you have a question. But why don't, I'll tell you what we'll do. If there are four people, we'll take four questions all together really quick and then I'll, I'll make something of it called a mashup. <laughs> There's two. Are there two over there? Anybody else? There's one. Somebody else? There's another one. Good. No, suddenly okay. we've got a crowd. Anyway, we'll do four and then we'll, we'll see if we've got time for another group. Go. Can you hear? Yes. Uh, is democracy better served by compulsory or voluntary voting? I'm just thinking about with compulsory voting, which we have here, you mobilise a lot of relatively unthinking people who are easily scared by sloganisms and things like that. Um, okay, great. Okay. But with, compared, say, with US, where you get charges of apathy, etc. Yeah, great. I love Do you want to just pass that to the next person? Yeah, great. In appreciation of all that you say about flexibility and creativity when it comes to decision-making, um, the behaviourists, have, and we can observe... There's this phenomenon now where once people have made up their mind, maybe two or three years ago when there's a debate about an issue, they're absolutely reluctant to change their mind. Now, I'd like to hear what you have to say about this. Okay. Um, without claiming causality, we did get to this point in time by putting half the population in charge. <laughs> Would it have been any different if we'd put the other half? And can we get out of where we are by putting the other half in charge? Okay. This is great. I love this. Yeah. <laughs> Haiku. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Con congratulations on your great talk. We really enjoyed it. Um, my question is, what do you think about Julian Assange and the way he's being treated by the West, uh, Australia, the United Kingdom, Sweden, and um, the United States? Do these countries use the wooden and fake language that you were talking about of avoiding communication uh, in order to justify their... Um, breaking of international law and also of um, hiding the true intentions? Well, so first, um, uh, actually, uh, on compulsory voting, I'm in favor of it. Uh, and David Malouf and I have had conversations about it in public here and in Canada. I think it's an interesting idea because it's not that it's the most important citizen's um, Responsibility. It's actually the easiest citizen's responsibility. Mm. The important responsibility is thinking. 
and speaking out loud. That's the important stuff. But, you know, at a certain point, you've got to vote, and, and voting is one of the inexact ways that we have of figuring out how to go in one direction or another. Um, and, of course, the fact that you're forced to vote doesn't stop you from spoiling your ballot. No. And I think, actually, spoiling your ballot is a very important statement if citizens mm-hmm. want to make that statement. If you find in, a, in your system that 25% of people are spoiling their ballot, if I were a politician, I'd say, gosh, there's a real problem with what we're doing. You know, so I think it's a very interesting mechanism, which is not like an opinion poll. And I've, I've said this in Canada, and it causes an enormous silence. And I mean, saying it in the United States, combined with their gun laws, would be very dangerous. <laughs> um, uh, but I think it's an interesting idea because – and what David's always said, um, Maloof has always said, is that, is that because it's obligatory, people come in families and they sit around and they mm. talk. And, of course, that happens anyway with, mm. you know, in other countries. But if everybody's going, then it really becomes um, a citizen's gathering. Yeah. It's a little bit like – this is different. But it's a little bit like I've noticed that new citizens or people who are going to become citizens – tend to go to places which are very, very well known, like Niagara Falls. Or last time I was in the Blue Mountains, during this very famous gorge, mm. um, I'm trying to remember what it's called now, but where millions of people go. And in and and, and summer days, they'll come and, and they'll sort of have big picnics on the ground of whatever food is from their place. And, and what they're actually doing is saying, I'm here now, and I'm Australian. But even though I'm Australian, I'm eating this really great food. Because uh, I'm sort of different, and being different is good, because this is the kind of place this is. And I, I find that very moving. Well, I think voting is sort of related to that sense of a public display of belonging, mm. if you see what I mean. Um, so I, I think that's really great. Um, I think uh, I, I personally uh, was very much in favor of the... I don't, didn't see anything wrong with the WikiLeaks leaking, and Penn actually took a very clear position on that. Um, uh, I had some more problems with the later leakings when there was no editing done, mm. even though it, I think it was all right in the end. But, you know, the, one of the things we always say is that the thing about the, we believe in unlimited freedom of expression. On the other hand, unlimited freedom of expression brings real responsibilities. So you always have to think, otherwise you get into, say, slander or whatever. And, and so you, if you're leaking a lot of stuff, you have to spend a little bit of time making sure that you're not destroying somebody, getting someone killed, for example, by mistake. So as long as they were leaking it after some people went through it to do their best, mm. I think it was really great. And, 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 and one of the most important things about that is that you know, I talked to a lot of ambassadors afterwards, and they said, oh, you know, our whole life of sending telegrams has been ruined. And, and actually, the telegram system is a very good way for governments to collect information. That is one of the jobs of embassies. Yeah. But I didn't have any sympathy. And the reason I didn't have any sympathy is because for the last 25 years at least, we've been in an era of increased secrecy. And we've been creating secrets by the millions every year. I mean... The United States in the 90s, they're, they're the most honest country on this subject, by the way, because they actually announce every year how many secrets of which level they've created. <laughs> Whereas everybody out of the, you know, the other traditions, we're much more hypocritical, so we don't actually like to talk about how many secrets. The Americans don't talk about what the secrets are, but they actually have an accounting system, you know, so many of this. Anyway, in the 90s, they were producing... 
two and a half million secrets a year. It's in Voltaire's Bastards, I think. I think it was two and a half million secrets a year. What in God's name they were. I mean, they're... You know, there are hardly any secrets of any value well, at all. Well, we obviously know from the WikiLeaks cables that they were things like the colour of the tie of the ambassador and how tasteless yeah, exactly. it was. Exactly. And so, so I think now the United States is creating 15 million secrets a year, which means Australia on a per capita basis would be whatever it is. You know, and we're all the same. One. So if you do that, million. you're going to have explosions. And this was a perfectly logical explosion. And I think it was quite healthy. And funnily enough, the foreign services didn't look too badly out of it, you know, no. interestingly enough. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, uh, the person I worry about the most is obviously the corporal. Mm. Um, I think he knew uh, what was going to happen to him. So he showed great courage. Uh, by doing it, and uh, you know, people who are what do you call it? Um, what's that called? Being a whistleblower. Sorry, uh, uh, that's the jet lag. Uh, I mean, whistleblowers are very interesting people mm. because they know their careers are going to be ruined. And in his case, I mean, who knows what the last yeah. line could be? And then finally, um, I think that you know, the, the 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 reason people won't change their mind is the reasons that I was saying. Um, uh, was giving in the speech, which is that there is no admiration in our society for changes of direction or changes of mind. Professionals are supposed to tell you the truth and they're supposed to stick to it, even if they're lying. And that's how you get something like the mad cow disease or, mm. you know, the, that's how you get something like this financial crisis. They simply can't stand up and say, you know, I'm terribly sorry, I was wrong. I was absolutely wrong. Now, you can fire me. Here's my ideas for what we should do instead. But, you know, that... And, and, I, and I'm not being romantic about the past because the past had many flaws, democracy. But it was much more common for ministers to stand up and actually try to change direction and fight like mad to change direction. And finally, in terms of the uh, other half being in charge, I mean, uh, there's no question that when you see an organization where the majority is women, it's run differently. Uh, and that's really interesting. Mm. Um, uh, there's no question that the law, and very related to it, politics, we're, just, we're structured entirely for men, men's clubs, you know, entirely for men's clubs. And so most women hate being in politics and hate being in big law firms because they force you to keep hours to act in a way which is suitable for middle-aged men trying to get over the loss of their youth and all the rest of it. And, and we have not reached the stage where women have been able to fundamentally change how those institutions function. I mean, uh, uh, you know... Um, yeah, you look at the big law firms. I was just talking to a young mm. woman here the other day. Big law firms can't king, keep young women. Why? Because the only way you can be in a big law firm and do well is to become a young man. Mm. And young women don't want to become young men. So they leave. And then the men say, you see? As opposed to saying, maybe there's something wrong with our law firm. Um, on, on the other hand, I mean, I think there are courts now where there are quite a few women on the High Court, Supreme Court. Head of Supreme Court of Canada for quite a long time now has been a woman, Beverly McLaughlin. She's been here quite often. They're usually three out of nine are women, usually. Um, uh, and she, it's very interesting because she's run a court where there's very little disagreement. <laughs> and I think that maybe because she's a woman, mm. acting like a woman. Mm. 
as opposed to, you know, Mrs. Thatcher. Yeah. You know, <laughs> which isn't an insult, but, you know, she's the model of the, you know, the woman who, if you survive in politics, you either have to be like, like Mrs. Gandhi, an aristocrat, and they, they obey you because you're an aristocrat, or you have to be a woman who acts like a man, uh, and I can't make judgments about your prime minister, I don't know. Or you have to be in a, in a class-based society like Britain where Mrs. Thatcher figured out this very interesting um, psychosexual nanny role, <laughs> which, which the men could not handle. You know, and it was brilliant. I mean, you know, I'm not talking ideas, but it was brilliant because what are you going to do? It's a men's club. She had to do something. You know. So anyway, I don't know if that's an answer or not, but... Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I think here we always like an answer that pokes slight fun at uh, the British in some way. So uh, perhaps, perhaps a good point to end. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you to you all for coming. I did forget to tell you uh, the Twitter hashtag for this event. So, but it's not too late if you want to say something. It's, um, the hashtag is Ralston Saul, not surprisingly. In light of what John has said, please do come to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas and listen to Tim Harford talking about why we need to make more mistakes because I think that may well turn out to be a continuation of this conversation in a very interesting way. If you can't bear to go home, pop upstairs and listen to Simon Callow at 7 o'clock. Otherwise, I hope to see you soon. And thank I'm, you again to John Rawlston. Can we say I'm going to sign books outside? Yes. And, John and will also, be, Penn has a table outside. John will be signing books outside. Penn has a table outside. And I'd just like to thank the Everett Foundation very much for putting, helping us put on this event, and in particular, Faye Gervasoni and Christopher Scheel. Thanks and good night.